from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. We are bringing it, and you have arrived to receive it. Welcome to the Badass Counseling Show. My name is Sven Erlinson. I am the host of the show, and I am joined in studio by my fellow producers, KC over in the booth. You can't see her. You can just imagine her loveliness. And uh, Rob the Rocket sitting next to me, the expert technician, tactician, all things ishin. How are you today, Rob? I'm fine. Thank you, Sven. You know, as uh, podcast hosts go this time of year, your flavor is pumpkin spice. Wow. There you go. Super bestest. Although I have to say, while I love pumpkin, I love roasting the seeds, eating those, and pumpkin is good to ease my dog's stomachs when they have upset tummies. I don't often get the pumpkin spice. I just, good old chocolate's generally good enough for me. Actually, I'm with you on that, dude. Absolutely. But people who love pumpkin spice love it. My daughter makes great pumpkin spice cookies and so forth. And so, yeah, it's very popular. As are you. Well, I don't know about that, but we have an interesting guest today, Rob. Will you, sir, please tell us about Michael? Happy to, Sven. Michael wrote in and said, I'm 37, male, and have realized that I struggle profoundly to feel love in romantic relationships. I was married at 22 for all the wrong reasons, but did have a feeling associated with love while dating my ex-wife. Despite not wanting to, I did get married and held on for nine years of a grueling marriage. We divorced six years ago, and I have since realized that, from near the beginning of my marriage until now, I am unable to feel love in romantic relationships. This impacts all aspects of my attempts at relationships. Most recently, I have broken up with my girlfriend of one year. I thought I would marry her when we met. This had nothing to do with any fault of hers, but simply that I could not feel the love, putting in quotes here, I thought I should be able to feel. So how do I go about navigating romantic relationships with the absence of feel, many E's in the middle of the word that he wrote to us, and ultimately, can I turn my ability to feel back on? Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It pleasure is completely ours. Let's Go right into it. Um, I noticed in your paragraph that you sent to us that seven different times you use the word feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, of those, four different times you say feel love. And obviously you're writing in because you want to feel love, but just the notion of feel and that you're struggling to feel and that I haven't felt and feel and feel and feel. Now, I'm sure you feel anger when... You know, at times, would that be safe to say somebody cuts you off in traffic or what have you? Is anger something that comes easily for you? Yeah, absolutely. I could have maybe specified feel positive feelings. You I, know? <laughs> no, you, you you made it clear with the yeah. feeling love yeah. and so forth. Um, and so isn't it interesting that there's something unique to love or to use the opposite of what you you're, to use what you just said, positive feelings that mm-hmm. is foreign to you? Just out of curiosity, before we sort of dive into the rest of what you said, what do you think the reason is that you struggle to feel positive feelings, yet, quote unquote, negative feelings uh, come rather easily? Why not positive feelings? I think I learned to shut it off as a protective mechanism. That's kind of, in my own self-analysis, what I've come to. And and so, yeah, I I don't know when that happened, why it happened, if it was an, an event or a series of events, but... 
That's kind of my hypothesis as to what's happened. Okay. And you say you don't know when it happened or, you know, how, why it happened or whatever, but you shut it off as a self-protective mechanism. Then that begs the rather obvious question, I think. And what would you have been, even if you don't know when or how, what would you have been protecting yourself from or whom? I think disappointment and pain. Um, like when I was when I was a kid, I was a very, very different person. I was very emotional and I experienced extremes of positive and negative emotion. I got in trouble a lot, but I also, you know, was a pretty happy kid for uh, a lot of my childhood. And then at some point I remember I, my parents would comment that I, you know, I all of a sudden became very cooperative, you know, and I just, I, I became a far easier child. And I think it was around that time that I just learned to kind of squelch my emotions a little bit. Uh, and if and okay that and if you were to speculate or if your parents were to speculate likely they have if they say there was a time when you just basically changed uh mm -hmm. spitball for me what would they say or what would you say that time roughly just roughly was age roughly. i would say yeah 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 i would say my mid-teens mid-teens exactly mid-teens i do recall before them though probably before i was 10 years old having a, a thought of don't get your hopes up because if you don't get your hopes up and you don't get excited then you don't get disappointed this is like i remember this very clearly as a child mm -hmm. and to this day i have an incredibly difficult time Truly, I just can't feel excitement for anything. I'll feel worry. I'll feel anxiety. But even if it's something I ought to be excited for, a completely positive event, I just feel nothing. Oh, and that makes sense. If it started pre-10, if you had the thought pre-10 years old, then what mm -hmm. you were doing, as you yourself just said, I was conditioning myself. I was basically, I don't want to get my fucking hopes up because I don't want to get my heart broken. I don't want to lose. And so then you protected yourself from the pain by cutting off the hoping. You protected mm -hmm. yourself from the pain to some degree by cutting yourself off of anything that might feel good. Mm -hmm. Reasonable? Absolutely. And yep. if you had, the, and you initially said, I said, well, who would you have been protecting yourself from? And you said, well, I'd be protecting myself from disappointment and pain. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I asked when, you said mid-teens, but then you said pre-10 years old. Well, mm -hmm. that leads to the belief of, I mean, if we just sort of game it out without, we don't know exactly, but if we were to game it out, that if you generally, when you got your hopes up, boy, you know, we're playing backyard football and uh, mm -hmm. I'm playing on this team, boy, I sure hope we win and we win. And mm -hmm. then you also, man, I, I'm really feeling good about learning the violin here. And so that's going well and you feel good about that. But then you had one disappointment within a con greater context of having your hopes met meeting your own expectations, and you had a few downtimes, that wouldn't necessarily drive you to no longer want to hope. So it seems to imply that either you had had a pattern of having your hopes squelched or not achieved, or you encountered one major significant event that just shattered you when you had massive hopes, mm -hmm. or potentially, you were hearing, you had no personal experience of your own, but you were hearing the message from an external power source whom you respected or who was just persistent. And you just heard it in perhaps in their own talk to each other. Maybe it was mom and dad, or maybe you, you know, worked in your, in your dad's store and you heard him constantly saying that to people or what have mm -hmm. you. I don't know what your parents did for a living. Not the point. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm betting 
And so if you're having that pre-10, you didn't say 10, you said pre-10 years old, that in all likelihood, either someone had been telling you that, you had been hearing that, you had had a significant event of your own, or um, prior to pre-10, so let's just say if you had this thought at nine, that means at five and seven and eight and nine, you had enough events to lead you to believe it is not a good idea to get my hopes up. Of mm-hmm. those roughly four different options, what would you say is the most likely scenario given what you know of your own past? Yeah, this is what I've really struggled with. I understand. I've, I've, Spitball it. Knowing you yeah. can change your mind five minutes from now or five days from now, is it more likely that there's persistent letdown of your own, that there was one major event that someone was telling you, don't get your hopes up, or that you were overhearing someone's conversation repeatedly and it just stuck? What was What's most likely? I think it's three of them. I think persistent letdown. Um, and I, there's a few examples I have there. I think it's uh, a repeated message, particularly from my dad, and uh, and then it's also overheard conversations. Okay. And just out of curiosity, what might those overheard conversations be? Um, I think a lot of um, um, witnessing my parents' lives and particularly my dad's lives in terms of his life and career and everything, a lot of a lot of disappointments, just a lot of failures to launch, you know, getting his hopes up significantly and then having them completely dash through just like, you know, trusted the wrong people or whatever, just one after the next, after the next. Wow. And uh, so then when, uh, so that was your third option, the overheard conversations. Your second Mm -hmm. option was dad's messaging. Would dad's Mm -hmm. messaging, was that directly to you or was it somehow distinctly different from those conversations you heard, say, between dad and mom or dad and uncle, where he's talking about his letdowns? In other words, was dad's messages distinct from the overheard conversations? Yeah, yeah. There were a couple examples of, of specifically to me when, when him and, and this was in my later teen years, my parents were having more marital difficulties. And, and I know there was a kind of extended family relationship that was falling apart due to a particular event and someone that he really had trusted. He had just decided that, you know, it's not, it's not worth trusting. And, and he had meant, he said some comment that really just rang out for me, which was basically like, don't ever, don't trust anybody because they'll always let you down or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Don't ever trust anybody because you'll always get hurt. They'll always let you down. And I, and I wasn't a child, you know, I, I realized it was said in a moment of, of anger. And, and to, to be honest, I thought it was childish and I was disappointed to hear the comment, um, but it still stuck with me. It sure did. And that was during some extended family trauma, you said, which means it would be possible to date that event Mm -hmm. and date that recognition. If you were uh, to date that event, what approximately would have been your age when you heard that? I would have been around 20. Okay. So by now, the message of, you know, uh, of avoiding, of being, just being the good boy and just doing everything right, not getting your hopes up. You had already been doing that since your mid-teens, even though the message had registered pre-age 10. So now this is roughly 20s, You, I believe you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now that just further cements what you had already uh, been living by that point, mm-hmm. per- potentially up to 10 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, so that was dad's message. The don't trust anybody because they'll always let you down. And all the overheard conversations, which probably went back as far back as you can, I mean, to literally your yeah. wee little lad sort of thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> which then leaves the last thing, uh, which was actually the first thing you listed, which was the third of the choices, your personal 
letdowns and what would have been the personal letdowns by your mid-teens, which is when you said you your parents noticed you changed and you changed into sort of mm-hmm. being the good boy and, and stay on the straight and narrow sort of thing. No mm-hmm. no more Mr. Rambunctious. What have been the what would have been the personal letdowns uh, that you would have experienced that would have further cemented that? Yeah, I think the the repeated personal letdowns, the ones that stand out, I'm sure there were many, but uh but uh, I listen to your show and I know you always, it's just like, just give me an example. We can, we can go from there. Um, so, you know, a lot of them were, I think, pre-10 and a lot of them actually had to do with gift giving. And, and it's funny because for me, gift giving is, is not an important thing. It's not really my love language. I just don't really care about it. Um, but maybe this is why. And so, you know, when I was a kid, it was, if there was an occasion coming up, birthday, Christmas, whatever, it was always, you know, give us, give us a list, you know, show like, tell us what you'd like. So I'd always do that. And I'd never get anything on the list. Wow. You know? we, we had we had very, you know, we were we just didn't have the means to get kind of crazy things, right? Fancy things, which was fine. And I wouldn't give outrageous lists. But I realized after a time, it's like, I know the price range. I'm giving you the list as I'm as you've asked. And you don't even. And so I'm like, why am I providing you a list? You don't even care. And so I was just like, this is stupid. And so I'd always I would get my hopes up about these things as a kid. And then it was just like. You didn't even look at the bloody list, and I would put time into this, you know? Wow. Wow. And just so I'm, I know you said it, but I just want to put an exclamation point on that. You said that you were cognizant when you were making those lists of the money constraints of your parents. You were buying things. So in retrospect, you were buying things, or you were listing things that were within the ballpark of reasonable, given what you knew Mm -hmm. at that age. Yeah, exactly. And you felt like they didn't even, as far as you know, didn't even look at the list. And what's fascinating is in your retelling of that story, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put anything, I want to put words in your mouth, but I want you to taste them and spit them out if they don't taste good, but swallow them if they do taste good. The way you were telling that story, there was animus in your voice. You didn't need to look at the list. That's, there's anger in there. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, the first few times I'm sure I didn't really notice, but eventually I had, I remember this distinct thought as a child. It's like, I'm not making a list anymore because you don't even look at it. There it is. That's the persistent, right, right. That was your response. And so you stopped uh, putting out a list. If you were to speculate when you stopped putting out a Christmas list, what Mm. would you speculate the age was roughly? I'm not sure. Again, around 10, I'm sure, somewhere around there. Okay. So yeah. around 10 and then uh, into your mid-teens is when you began to check out from, I mean, the Christmas mm-hmm. list, that's a checking out from. And your mm-hmm. parents obviously would have noticed that. Yeah. So they, so while you may say, yeah, for me, it was mid-teens. If you did that around mm-hmm. 10, they noticed mm-hmm. that at least then is when it began to start. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to get I, my- Just to clarify, please, if, I, if I may. Please, please. Um, so I, I would continue to provide a list because I was asked, but I shut off any hope or expectation, uh-huh. any of those things on the list would actually come to fruition. So, so it was I, just like, I would provide it. But got it. So I will go through the motions. I will yeah. go through the motions, but my it heart's not in it. Does that sound, uh, does it, did that bear any echoes to your adult love relationships? I'll go through the motions, but my heart's yeah. not in it, right? Basically, exactly it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, back then when... Uh, it would be Christmas. So then Christmas, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, you specifically brought up Christmas. Is it reasonable to extrapolate that the list is and so forth thing to birthdays or was that strictly a Christmas thing? No, no, birthdays and Christmas. Birthdays and Christmas. All right. I don't know how birthdays and Christmas were in your home and every home is different, but in my home, six kids didn't have a lot of money. 
You know, dad was a country pastor. Birthdays and Christmas, that was a big fucking deal. You know, because mm-hmm. if, if for no other reason, it's my day. Everybody gets mm-hmm. to look at me. I get German chocolate cake handmade by mom. It's like the best, right? So you, and so, it, and if you get a good present on top of that, which we didn't get a lot of, you know, 1972, I think I got a Tommy gun, rat-a-tat-tat, and that was the greatest <laughs> fucking present ever. <laughs> But we equated. What's that? That's still a good present. You know? well, absolutely, awesome. absolutely. You know, toy gun, whatever. Anyway, mm. um, my, my my girlfriend was anti guns, and so every Christmas I'd buy her and her daughters toy guns. And her daughter, her daughters are adults, and I'd buy them toy guns just to fuck with them. Anyway, yeah. um, playfully. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm a dick. Um, so. Birthdays and Christmases are elevated days of the year. They should be the very apex. At least, you know, if, if somebody celebrates Christmas, you know, bear with me. That for in a child's mind, that's the apex of the year. That is the very zenith, the top days of the year, right? Because it's special. There's presents, there's celebration, family coming together, and so on and so forth. Yet, if I'm hearing you correctly, you began, would it be safe to say that you began to uh, equate birthdays and Christmases with disappointment, significant disappointment, and also animus, anger, Mm -hmm. fucking A, you guys, whether or not you ever articulated it, fucking A, you guys fucking let me down again. It's just like, mm-hmm. this is bullshit. I don't even want to open your stupid fucking presents. Oh, thanks for the mm-hmm. fucking socks, ma. You know, what is that somewhat accurate, inaccurate? What would you say? I would say it's somewhat accurate. I mean, similar to yours, they, yeah, birthdays and Christmas are always a big deal. And, and my parents honestly, you know, did great uh, with, with the means they had. It was, it was great. But once I learned to shut off, there was no hope. Like that's, I think part of the reason I just didn't care about gifts at all because I just learned to shut it off. It was not a big deal. It was, of course, when I was younger, it was, I mean, like all kids, you know, it was right. a, a tremendous deal, right? right. Um, but as I got into into my teens and stuff, I just absolutely stopped caring. I would open gifts, but and occasionally be pleasantly surprised, but and I didn't it, care. Right, and and that's what I'm getting at. Yes, the childhood <laughs> thing, but then once, and it wasn't even teen years. You said it was ten. It was right around mm-hmm. ten when you started to be mm-hmm. disappointed. And I guess what I'm getting at is, was there that shutting off, that checking out? That's a creating distance. Mm-hmm. And we create distance from something when it's painful. And very often what accompanies that pain as a protection, you use the word self-protection, all right, mm-hmm. that I, I would shut off to self-protect. And I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, so it was fear-driven. And what I'm getting at is uh, how much anger was there in there as well? Whether or not you are allowed to verbalize that towards your parents, how much anger, because very often self-protection, another self-protection mechanism that a human uses is anger. And you expressed at the very top that, yeah, (laughs) anger comes naturally. Would you, whether or not you ever expressed it, would you feel angry that you had been fucking robbed again, or that I'm just going through the fucking motions, basically fuck off. And you're not saying it out loud, but you're feeling it. Were you registering anger? I think I think early I was definitely registering anger, and then that faded down to just neutrality. I just learned to shut it off. And and is the Suppress new it. <laughs> right? Right? Is let me ask you to tweak that if it requires tweaking, and it may not. Was the neutrality really indifference? No, I think it. I think it morphed more into quiet disappointment. Okay, so the disappointment was always there. That never went away. So mm. despite your efforts in the in the sort of shutting off, you weren't fully shut off. The pain was still registering. 
Mm-hmm. And right, I mean, is, am I hearing yeah. you correctly? Okay. Yeah, I was not expressing it, but it's still registering. Which yeah. means, which means that you are still allowing. It seems to mean you are still allowing uh, some measure of hope to sneak in, or it was sneaking in, whether you wanted or not. Otherwise, how could you be disappointed if you didn't hope for anything in the first place? Yeah, that could be true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then, uh, let me ask you this. Um, is that, do you believe, I mean, we've sort of drawn a causation, a causal relationship mm-hmm. then between this notion of in adulthood, getting my hopes up and investing, stepping towards, you said you shut off, which is a, taking a step backward. Mm-hmm. Is, there, mm-hmm. is there a causal relationship between, I don't want to step towards a love, a person, for the mm-hmm. same reason I don't want to step into fully step into Christmas because if I step in, you're just going to hurt my feelings. I mean, it's, I'm fucking Charlie Brown with Lucy in the fucking football. I yeah. I know you're going to pull the football away, Mom. I'm not going to yeah. step into this. Is is there a causal relationship? Do you believe between that and now in adulthood? I'm terrified to truly invest because, in Dad's famous words, "Don't trust anybody because they'll always let you down." Do you believe there's a causal relationship between that child, those childhood significant experiences, and what you're going through in love in your adult life? Yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it, and I think my my marriage was another big part. But yeah, I think that is a big part. I, I definitely see the pattern for sure, mm-hmm. um, and I think. But what I noticed, and this is what I've kind of partly been plagued by is that going into my marriage, I definitely felt what I thought I should feel and, and, uh, you know, leading to a seemingly healthy relationship at that age and stage. Um, and then I actually knowingly turned the tap all the way off leading into my wedding. Okay. We're going to take a break more to come right after this. So I was telling a buddy of mine how he seems happier. He told me about the book that changed his life. So I bit, I went to the Badass Counseling website and downloaded There's a Hole in My Love Cup audiobook. I started listening to it on my commute home from work, and holy cow, it was a Louisville slugger to the face. I literally sat in my car in the driveway night after night, listening through to the end of a chapter or doing the journaling exercises. My wife started to see changes. I started to change a lot. My default response stopped always being anger. Now, I manage a team of salespeople, and I changed as a leader. I was listening more, not always just reacting. When their numbers started going up seemingly out of nowhere, I knew what the reason was. There's a hole in my love cup is now required listening for any person on my sales team or working for me, and I gladly buy it for them. You gotta listen to this book. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with Michael. Uh, Michael, you were saying that in your first marriage, you got married when you were 22, and prior to the actual wedding, you felt what you felt you should feel. Uh, You said, I did have a feeling associated with love in your write-up, and you said just a minute ago, I felt uh, beforehand what I felt I should feel. When you say what I should feel, or you say a feeling associated with love, what precisely a feeling, what is the feeling we are talking about that you should feel? You know, kind of a a deep, like, excitement, kind of that butterflies feeling, you know, that... uh, And excitement about what specifically? Just your relationship with an individual, you know, that's that's profound desire to spend time with them, just be in the same room with them, you know, that kind of thing. And 
I don't think I have an illusion that I, I should feel at 37 how I felt at, you know, 14, kind of this just like <laughs> unable to control obsessive kind of feeling, you know, like that more infatuative feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there should be more than just a feeling of, new, of just neutral, you know? Oh, yeah. And and so just so I'm curious, you married at 22. Uh, when did you uh, meet this person? A woman, I presume? Yes, yes, you said yeah, ex-wife. Yeah, uh, yeah, what, yeah. A, what age were you when you met her? I was, I was 20. You were 20. Okay. And just out of curiosity, so you, you felt this deep excitement to be in a relationship with someone that you want to spend time with. And just out of curiosity, and if you were to break that down, if I were to ask you, was your excitement on this notion of someone to spend time with, all right, uh, and you had this deep excitement, what percent of your excitement was you had someone that you wanted to spend time with? And what percent was your excitement you had someone who wanted to spend time with you? That is a good question. Thank you. I thought of it myself. <laughs> um, I would say 40, 60. So I would say you said 40 yeah, percent want to. I want to. And then 60% they wanted to with me. There we go. Let me ask you, was this the first woman where you really got the feeling, or first female, um, where you really got the feeling, girlfriend, lover, whatever, where you really got the feeling this person really wanted to be with you? Was this the first, or was this perhaps the first significant one, or was it not the first first, at all? It was the first significant one, yeah. Okay. It was the first person you dated for any actual length of time <laughs> first person i dated for any length of time so then yeah. and here you have this woman uh who wants to be with you mm-hmm. and let me ask you and maybe it didn't but just out of curiosity was her desire to be with you and to be with you long term repeatedly mm-hmm. over the two years prior to the marriage did mm-hmm. was her desire to be with you a dis and again maybe it wasn't a distinct counter message from what you had experienced in your life prior to that and or what you believed about yourself. Oh, 100%. I knew, yeah, I was a, a relational late bloomer and uh, it was completely because I thought I was unwantable for many reasons. And this was the first person that really seemed to want me. And uh, and I just clung on to that. That was a foreign feeling for me and, and uh, yeah. Okay. And there you had mentioned that you were a relational late bloomer and that you were unwantable and holy shit, now I have somebody that wants me. So your love cup not only had not gotten love, I don't want you, I'm the love source, whether it's a parent or a grandma who raised you or whatever, the love source is over here. Now, way back here, right over on the top shelf of the bookcase, and you got no one actively or very little actively pouring love into you. And Mm. so the child begins to think, I'm unwantable. But then if Mm. you compound it with the external power sources in your life are sticking crud Mm. into you, like you suck, Mm. you're ugly, you're not Mm. smart, you're you're dumbo, you're whatever, Mm. um, Mm. then that is going to further exacerbate Mm. feeling unwantable. So just out of curiosity, uh, which one or both was it for you that there was no love source really significantly actively pouring love into your love cup? And or was it there were people, persons actively putting negative messaging into you that would cause you to believe you're unwantable? Was it either one or both? It was definitely both. And who were the main deliverers of those messages or who was the main deliverer? 
I would say my, I would say my dad. Yeah, I would say my dad. And the primary, so he was simultaneously not giving love, and he was simul as well as giving, for lack of a better word, bad or negative messaging about you. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, and and ironically, like he was very uh, verbally loving. So it was the classic, you know, words versus actions. Very verbally loving, and then basically actions and and certain, um, let's say, inflammatory moments would just dash that completely. Briefly, the actions, roughly speaking, were what? Uh, it was not like physical abuse or anything. Like okay, that. I, I would say that it was like probably verbal and emotional abuse, just kind of. Uh, you know, if there was a, a house, uh, how would I explain this? A family event, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. his response to that would just be just crazy. He was a very black and white individual and, and his way of managing that everything would become a family affair. Everyone would get roped into everybody's problems and it would be just a big drama fest. And it was wild. So that was a big one. And the other repeated message. So in my house, I mean, my dad struggled with his weight quite a bit so through his whole life, despite tremendous effort. And in my house, being fat was the worst thing that you could be. And we were all on the chunkier side. And so, you know, and I went through a period of my life where I was quite overweight. And in my mind, I was always overweight, even through late high school. This is largely why I didn't pursue any kind of relationship. I thought I was, there was no woman that would want me because I was, in my eyes, overweight. Now, looking back at my high school pictures, truly like I was out to lunch, like disorder. Right. Like I was right. in good shape. I was a handsome dude. And in right. talking to people that I was friends with, they were like, no, lots of women wanted to date you. We were, we thought you had high standards. And then you're like, no! them. Yeah, oh, I was the, like, I was terrified because I thought the opportunities. Yeah. Right. And so, okay. and then repeated message by my grandparents as well. So that was a big deal. Oh, and what was the, the primary message in one sentence or, sentence or less that you got from grandparents? Oh, it was the same thing about weight management. Yeah. And, but, and so was it subtle, not so subtle messages like, are you sure you want to eat that? Or was it messages like, wow, oh, you've no, gotten even fatter when I thought it wasn't possible. Oh yeah, basically. Yeah. So I, okay. I mean, I, re I remember when I was in grade four, so actually right around 10, oddly, um, that, uh, my grandfather, he just looked at me one day and I was quite overweight by that point. And, uh, he looked at me and said, how much do you weigh out of the blue? And, and I just, I, told him because I weighed myself like obsessively, you know, in grade four. And, right. Uh, and he's like, that's how much I weigh, you know? And I remember feeling just like intense shame that me at 10 weighs the same amount as like my grandpa at whatever age he was, you know? Right. And uh, so we covered, you had said three things in terms of getting the message that you were unwantable. Mm -hmm. it, it was both the not giving love as well mm -hmm. as into your love cup, not pouring love, but also mm -hmm. putting negative messaging into the love cup. And you've told me about the negative messaging you got into your love cup, mm -hmm. but uh, just briefly, how did you, who was not giving love? Cause you said your dad verbally was loving. Yeah. So who wasn't giving love then? No, I was like, he was verbally loving, but his actions overshadowed that. Gotcha. To where, gotcha. His, to where his words meant nothing to me. Gotcha. And and what's fascinating is you said verbally loving, and then about two sentences later, when I asked about the actions, you said, well, he could be verbally and emotionally abusive. Mm -hmm. So he was verbally loving and verbally abusive. Oh, yeah. One day he was, we all walked on eggshells and continue to walk on eggshells around him because one day he's all um, grace and love and, you know, and then he will absolutely go off and, and lose it about something. And we're just like, I mean, now we're adults, we just walk away. We don't given the time of day, but mm -hmm. when you're kids and you can't, like it was shocking. And 
reasonable to say that if you're walking on eggshells, knowing that dad could have these flashes and so forth, and that you are already, you know, uh, on the shit list because you were fat and fat was not allowed, or you were overweight and fat was not allowed in your house. But knowing that dad, that you were walking on eggshells and dad had these flashes, is it reasonable to say that you grew up scared? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and let me ask you then, did that translate into other areas of your life? Uh, so for instance, helping with homework, did dad help with homework or mom, or were there other areas of your life besides your weight where you knew there was fear if you weren't doing things right or something along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I turned into a, a very high performing individual. That was kind of how I earned my love. Um, but a lot of it was, uh, was fear-based in that, you know, it was, you better do this or kind of thing in my mind that was not verbally stated. My parents were always very verbally, very supportive and, and you can do whatever you want. And, right. um, I would say in the, in the realm of sports, very different because that was my dad's domain. So things that were my mom's domain, music and stuff, uh, and more school, very supportive sports. No. And, and sports was horrible. <laughs> uh, so you were not a sports person then? Is that what you're saying? I, I did a lot of sports and I was uh-huh. mediocre at all of them. Um, yeah. But there was a lot of, of criticism about it. And did you, you said you became very sort of high functioning and succeeded in, uh, in the you know school realm, it sounds like, and but not in the sports realm, at least in dad's eyes. Did you become high functioning and successful then in your life as a way of gaining praise or avoiding criticism? I think both. Okay, now give me a percentage. What percent was it, if you were to dig deep, what percent was it to avoid pain, avoid flying above the radar, or only fly above the radar when you're looking good and you're beyond criticism? What percent of your succeeding was to avoid pain? What percent was to gain approval? Probably 50-50. Neither stand out as the priority there. Okay, that's fair. And so 50%, so then it's reasonable to state as an extrapolation, well, you just conceded, it's not even extrapolation, Mm -hmm. that 50% of your work life has been spent trying to avoid your parents' criticism, your father mainly, it sounds like, and Mm -hmm. potentially grandfather, to avoid your father's criticism, that potentially as much as half of your life has been spent Mm -hmm. trying to avoid your father's criticism. Is Mm -hmm. that uh, reasonably accurate or inaccurate? I think that's reasonably accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And have you realized that before? Not, I haven't appreciated the the significance of it. That's for sure. How does it feel to hear it, to say it, to see it, to know that I've spent half my (laughs) fucking life just trying to, well, and think about that. Not I've been, I've spent half my life running in fear of you, you motherfucker. Mm. And half the other half has been trying to get you to just fucking be nice to me for fuck's sake. Mm. Is that so? What you're saying is, at least when it comes to career, and potentially more than that, mm-hmm. my 100 percent has been in living response mm-hmm. to that man or to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mom, you know, thanks, but whatever. And then grandpa, that 100 percent, or potentially in the ballpark of that, has been as a response to that shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reasonable. It's very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. Uh, I think it's very reasonable. I think a lot of us do that, and, and the irony is that I've I've dwarfed <laughs> dwarfed my dad as far as career success goes, and uh, and I still get his criticism. <laughs> and and well, and that begs, and I still want to go back to the love question because we didn't finish that, but that that uh, renders in me the question of 
if you were to be totally honest, what percent of you is still wanting dad's approval? Or wanting, let me give you uh, this batch, what percent of you is still wanting dad's uh, uh, affection, attention, approval, acceptance, acknowledgement of what he did, apology, Mm -hmm. just lumping all that together, what percent of you, if you're being totally honest, still wants something from your father? 100%. Wow. Yeah. And so you realize then that, I mean, that's classic to use sports jargon, he fucking owns you. Yeah. And he owns your capacity to be happy mm-hmm. because you are spending your life trying to win his approval, trying to avoid his criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was with a woman who was a dancer in Broadway shows and so forth. And she had the realization in her early 40s when her mother came to one of her shows, it was a Broadway show and mm-hmm. was critical and so forth. And she had the realization, I'm, and it, it happened that night, mm-hmm. I am never going to get her approval. Mm-hmm. That awareness that holy shit, Mm-hmm. And it's simultaneous, and I see this all the time with clients. It happened in my own life and so forth mm-hmm. uh, with one particular person. But it's simultaneously the saddest day of a person's life mm-hmm. and the most liberating day of a person's life because I realize I no longer have to engage in gymnastics, bending and contorting and striving mm-hmm. with my life to win this mm-hmm. person's approval. My life now, as mm-hmm. of today, mm-hmm. is finally my own fucking life. Mm-hmm. Because you just said 100%. You didn't even fucking hesitate. Mm-hmm. You said 100% of my life has been trying to get that approval, that acceptance, you know, attention, affection, you know, mm-hmm. apology, something, mm-hmm. and avoid the pain of his criticism. Mm-hmm. And so let me ask you this question. Uh, you're 37, which means your father is how old? Uh, he's in his early 60s. Early 60s. Yeah, I, think, right. I think he's 64. Okay, so not old at all, probably not, potentially not even retired. Um, and so he's young. And mm-hmm. so, but you have a 37-year pattern, mm-hmm. a 37-year pattern that you have witnessed in your father mm-hmm. that you are, he sees you constantly as a disappointment or as the, or if he sees you otherwise, he sure as shit ain't fucking conveying it consistently. Mm-hmm. You have a 37-year pattern of inconsistency of his being critical, of his, his not giving you the approval that mm-hmm. you want. And so my curiosity is, uh, with you is recognizing that you are a high-functioning person who is likely very intelligent and capable of recognizing patterns. How long for you in a longitudinal study does a pattern have to exist before you accept that this pattern is true and fact? Mm-hmm. And that I I, I have this 37-year pattern that I'm not going to get the approval I want. Mm-hmm. I have this 37-year pattern mm-hmm. that no matter how high I achieve, it's mm-hmm. never going to be enough, and that no matter what, I'm still going to be susceptible to this person's criticism. Yeah. How many more years in a longitudinal study do you need to have before you finally accept it and stop striving, stop hoping for yeah. that person's acceptance? I think 37 is sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't it fa- now okay. now let's con- let's consider this though wow you remember how we were talking about the course you the presence and you stopped getting your hopes up uh because fuck that shit i know i'm gonna get my hopes dashed yeah maybe occasionally you got me a half-assed gift but mm-hmm. basically they sucked but for 37 years you've kept your hopes up mm-hmm. wow mm-hmm. Third, that in all other areas, but you even said though, in those Christmases and birthdays, you still had a little bit of hope because you had a little bit of disappointment, mm-hmm. but you still have held out hope against hope. Mm-hmm. You you were so fucking smart at 10. You mm-hmm. saw the pattern of behavior at 10. Mm-hmm. You started checking out of the gift giving thing. Mm-hmm. But for 
triple, almost quadruple that amount of time, you have still held out hope that dad will stop being a fucking dick, mm-hmm. stop being this fucking miserable puss that, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean a puss on your face, not a pussy, but just like, mm-hmm. oh, you have a puss on your face, mm-hmm. uh, sad, sad sack sort of thing that, oh, everything falls apart, everything falls apart. When are you going to stop criticizing me? When are you just going to be a father and just say something fucking nice? Mm-hmm. You've, you've held out hope that long. That's how powerful the desire is. That's Mm -hmm. how much children love parents. Furthermore, Mm -hmm. that's how how Mm fear-inducing and imprinting Mm -hmm. that criticism is. Thoughts, Mm -hmm. feelings, go ahead. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I know that deep down that that hope is still there. I mean, I, I limit my relationship with my dad for because it's just so frustrating and and painful now. But I know it's because the hope is there quietly and is continually dashed at every attempt. And so, yeah, no way. How how would you live life differently, Michael? How would you live life differently if you just accepted the fact it's never going to happen? And rather than forever orienting, 100% orienting yourself to this external sort of beacon Mm -hmm. and desiring the approval, yet also fearing that moving towards wanting the approval, yet keeping away that sort of Mm -hmm. push-pull, uh, how would your life be different in just off the top of your head? How might it be different in whether tactically or strategically or in terms of how you feel or whatever, how would it, might it be different if you were to finally realize I'm never going to get it and to accept that fact and to sort of walk away from wanting it? Mm-hmm. I think I would have a market increase in freedom, you know, a sense of freedom. Precisely. Very and, and what would his, uh, criticisms feel like you already say, well, we walk away when he criticizes, mm-hmm. which actually raises the very fascinating question. Um, and, and I don't mean to be offensive, but why do you still engage with someone who's largely only critical? Um, because you want that approval? Well, largely because of obligation, because I feel like I should respect my elders, quote unquote. Um, you know, but mm-hmm. truly I, I, I have limited my relationship. Honestly, out of pity, you know, uh, he doesn't have a lot of friends and doesn't have a lot of, Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't exactly. And truly like his kids are some of his only friends and we've been the lifelong sounding boards for all of his problems yeah. and continue to be. And so yeah. a lot of it is pity. Well, yeah. And, and if you've been lifelong, you said lifelong sounding boards, that means you were doing it as a child. That means a child was being burdened with adult problems. So that means when you talk about this notion of, you know, respect your elders. And and if you're, you know, if you had Christmas, that means you grew up in a Christian upbringing, which means, you know, you had the old honor your father and mother shit and all that. Right. There's, there's sort of a, a covenant there. There's an expectation. There's a contract, if you will. But if he's already at that age, criticizing, putting down a child and dumping adult problems on you, he has engaged in breach of contract Mm. before you were out of fucking nappies, Mm -hmm. before you were out of fucking elementary school. There was already a breach of contract, but he's happy to uh, uh, implicitly or quietly guilt you into believing you still have to keep engaging in your half of the contract. See this shit all the time in marriages. You know, one person, oh, I I cheated, but you can't do anything bad to me. Wait, I just breached the fucking, yeah, you can. Mm -hmm. And and so at some point, Michael, you've got to ask yourself the question, do I give myself permission to make my happiness priority in my life? Because right now it sure sounds like A, dad's happiness and eating dad's shit, but also orienting my whole life to what will make dad proud what will make dad approve of me and so in a way you've been completely disoriented from your own sense of self Mm -hmm. 
And, and so then that's, it's just like, well, who am I now if I'm not forever trying to live for dad's approval? I want to go back though to what you said about love. And you said, right prior to your marriage, I was feeling what I think I should feel. Uh, but then right before the wedding, I turned it off. You said, mm-hmm. now I know I have a massive amount of female listeners or uh, also gay male listeners who have been in relationships or even non-binary people who have been in relationships with men who turned off whatever feelings were there, turned it off either right before the wedding or right after the wedding or at some point uh, after the wedding. And I I know all of us want to hear, you said you shut it off right before the wedding. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I was absolutely terrified. Primarily terrified of what? I was terrified to be married. I was I was getting married because I felt it was the right thing to do, not because I wanted to do it. Um, it was just, this is the next step in a relationship. It was a lot of pressure from my now ex-wife. You know, I didn't think we'd be dating. We'd been dating long enough. She was actually quite a bit younger than I was. And, uh, and she really wanted to get married, basically gave me an ultimatum. And so it was like, you marry me or, or this is done. And so I decided to, and then I thought, okay, I'll, I'll propose. And then I'll, we'll have time. We'll have, we'll be engaged for a year or two. And four months later we were married. And so there was such an emotional overwhelm, um, given the time frame and everything that I just couldn't handle it. And I just completely shut my emotions off because I, I couldn't manage them. And, uh, and I just thought, I'm going to go through the motions. This is what you do. I mean, my examples of relationships in my life were terrible. And so I just thought that this is the next logical step in life. This is how it works. But, just out of curiosity, were you, so you were coming under fire from her. She's pressuring you to get married. Yeah. Were you coming, were you coming under fire or might you have come under fire if you had not got married, specifically from the most powerful person in your life, which sounds to be mm-hmm. your father? Where did father weigh in on this? Or if you kept dating, where would he weigh in on it? I honestly, yeah, I don't think that it would have been like, I don't think there would have been, I would have been under fire from him. Um, yeah, he was fine with us getting married. There was certainly no pressure to be married. You know, he kind of thought it was quick, but not enough to stand up and intervene. And so if you could play that your cards differently, knowing what you know now, whatever it is, you know, now at uh, go back to 22, when you shut down because you were terrified to be married. Um, well, actually I was going to ask you, what would you do differently? But I guess what I really want to ask you is, at least ask you first is what were you most terrified of? Cause it, it's easy for people to say listeners might be saying, Oh yeah, he's, you know, afraid of commitment, commitment full. But what does that mean in this case? What specifically were you, why were you terrified of to be married? What specifically were you terrified of? What was the pain you feared potentially happening? I just think I felt I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. It wasn't even a, a pain that I was trying to avoid. It was a, I've really only dated one person. I don't really know what's out there. You know, it was kind of this, what I call kind of. But so what do you fear happening? If And, and all that reasoning is logical. That makes total mm-hmm. sense. I'm not disparaging that or disputing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. What did you fear happening? Well, I haven't dated other people and mm-hmm. I am young. So if I get married to you, then what? You're, it's still, there's still a fear in there. Mm-hmm. I just felt, I was afraid of being stuck with this person and then and then afraid of ultimately divorcing them. Gotcha. Which is precisely what happened, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, just out of curiosity, whose divorce was it? Yours or hers? Whose divorce? Like who initiated? Yeah. Who um, Who was the one pushing for it? 
You know, I know in your it's book, always I mean, somebody's. Whose yeah, was it? Really? I know. I know. <laughs> I read this in your book, and I was like, this is kind of a, a weird situation. Everybody hates it when I say it, but really, yeah, yeah. in the end. So, in the end, who didn't want whom? So, in the end, I I pushed and I pushed like for the relationship to end. I was not interested for many mm-hmm. reasons, and mm-hmm. then we kind of had a reconciliation moment um, mm-hmm. where I saw a lot of necessary change that I needed to see in her. And mm-hmm. I approached the subject of reconciliation and she was not interested and then initiated the divorce. Uh, yeah. And probably her heart had been broken by that point because you had pushed her away and so forth. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Just out of curiosity, did father weigh in on divorce? Um, <laughs> ironically, him and my mom got divorced right around the same time. So he was, <laughs> he was pretty quiet about it. <laughs> oh, I'll bet yeah. he was right. Yeah. <laughs> Although some have the brass balls to say, why are you getting a divorce? Right. Oh, Don't yeah. look at me. What, what are you talking? It's different for me. No, no, um, no. and so let me ask you then, what do you believe, uh, is the single biggest inhibitor presently, uh, at you opening up to, feeling feelings, allowing feelings, showing feelings uh, in a love relationship? What do you think is the presently the biggest inhibitor? I, I think it's, I think it's just a deep set fear. You know, I just think of, I think it's a fear of, of intimacy and the, ultimately a fear of losing this person that I'm potentially going to open up to. Right. Well, but is it, let me ask you this, what percent is it fear of losing this person? Hmm. And what percent is it opening up, showing this person who I really am and they don't like me? Is it the actual losing of the person or is it that what that losing them, what they're turning their back, walking away means? It means they, I revealed my real self and they don't like it. So what percent is it actually losing the person and which percent is it that they don't want me? I think it's actually the first, you know, I'm, I'm actually very open about who I am in relationships and, uh, and no, you're not. So wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, 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 stop. Because you told me one of the core messages that you got in your childhood was that you are unwantable. So you are telling me that now you believe yourself innately at your deepest core to be a wantable person. No, I don't. No, 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 no. I don't believe that I'm a wantable person. Right. I get, but I get the messaging a lot that I'm wanted, but I just don't believe it. Right, right. Which means the real problem is that deep inside of you, you believe you are still unwantable. That's the problem. That's why you don't want to open up. Because mm-hmm. if I open up and show you who the fuck I really am, you're not going to like it. I know you're not. Mm-hmm. I, I just know you're not. Sure, mm-hmm. I have a successful career or sure, mm-hmm. you know, I can check all the boxes of what a man is supposed to be or whatever. Mm-hmm. But deep down inside, I'm shit. And mm-hmm. you have that in common with like 90% of humanity. All mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that's how fucking powerful it is. And so let mm-hmm. me ask you, plain and simple, above all else, what is the single most unwantable part about you? I honestly don't know. I have to think about that. Okay. Well, yeah. you already told me that it's not that you're fat, mm-hmm. right? Because you went back and looked at those pictures. It's like, holy shit, I, you know, I looked good. I was handsome. Yeah. So, or maybe it is. Are you fat in your eyes? Well, I'm, I'm still chubby, but I'm not anywhere near where I was. Is it something that would make you unwantable, inherently no. unwantable? Are no. you a handsome guy? Not reasonably. In your eyes? Yeah. Reasonably. Yeah, reasonably. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, are you, you know, do you kick kittens? Are you mean to kittens? <laughs> Only when they ask for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't. When does no. a little kitten ever? I yeah, know. No, um, uh, so then what is the unwantable part? 
What, even if it's not the most unwantable part, what is something about you that is unwantable? Let's see if you can get vulnerable with me here, Daddy-O. Because mm -hmm. I know with me, mm -hmm. I'm unwantable when I'm hungry, when mm -hmm. I'm tired and I lash out and I just get, I'm run down mm -hmm. and I raise my voice. Mm -hmm. I know I'm unwantable. I was unwantable for years because I didn't make a lot of money. And I was for years, I lived on the street working with homeless, so I didn't have money. Mm -hmm. I know for a lot of women, that would be unwantable. Mm -hmm. And parts about my personality that I don't want someone to cook for me. I don't eat a lot of food. So if you give love by cooking, mm -hmm. you're going to fall flat with me. And, and I have unwantable aspects. I can get love handles and, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes and mm -hmm. so forth, which in my eyes, oh, no, I'm unwantable. So what is it about you? What is it about you that is so fucking unwantable? Because you believe, you said it yourself, deep down, I am unwantable. I want to know what is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is not a, a fear of vulnerability. <laughs> I laid all okay, out. Okay, then what is know. so fucking disgusting about you? Nothing. Yeah. I, Thank I, you. I, you just answered my fucking question. Nothing. You can't come up with something. You're an intelligent guy. Yeah. Every single question I've asked you, you've had an insightful answer, even if you had to think about it. So in other words, what's that, what that means is you are carrying around a court. And, and you may have some things. I mean, he, my love handles, or I, I, you know, I get angry now and then. That doesn't make a person unwantable. Mm -hmm. It just makes you annoying on some fucking days, man. And I, I'm going to work, man, because I don't want to fucking have to listen to your bullshit this morning. You know, but that's not innately unwantable, which mm -hmm. means that you have a core belief that got pressed into the wet cement of your soul when you were a child that you were unwantable. Wantable, and it was never fucking true to begin with. Mm -hmm. And you still believe it. Mm -hmm. It's still driving the show. You mm -hmm. are afraid. We all want someone to see who we really are and accept us for who we really are. But the hitch in that equation is in order for you to, sh to see who I really am, I have to show you who I really am. And you're terrified to do that because you still exist to the now outdated belief, the now debunked belief that you're unwantable. And furthermore, the longer you keep people around you who basically remind you of that outdated belief, that myth that was never true to begin with, mm -hmm. the longer you keep people around who even insinuate that that might be true, even in the smallest of ways, the more you are confirming it because you are allowing that person in your life. Mm -hmm. All right, so your father criticizing you now, I'm not being a dick, but that's on you, man, because you're allowing him mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. And so let me ask you this then, what do you want to ask me? What's the unanswered question for you today? How do I turn it back on? <laughs> okay. That's the exact right yeah. question. Yeah. That's the perfect. And you turn it on by doing precisely what we did today. There's still more shit in there that has to be flushed out and origins that have to be identified. It's fascinating that you said you read my book. And yet here we are having the conversation today and you had brand new insights. Mm about, oh shit, I didn't even think about that, that mm -hmm. I, there is a 37 year pattern, that I am still wanting it and so forth. So that, and, then, and that's fine that we did it today, even after reading the book, you know, I, it's 80% of my counseling method, it's not all of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's, but there's still more you can do, but what you need to be doing is going inside and identifying what are my core beliefs, are they true? Uh, what are, what's really driving my fears here? What am I most afraid of? Um, and where does that fear come from? And, and with those fears, particularly the fear of opening up, let me ask you this question. And this is really what I believe to be the ultimate question, Michael. If you losing someone, if you open up, or if them not wanting you, if that were to happen, if you were to open up to someone, and remember, not everyone's gonna like who Sven is. Even if I open up and reveal it, there are plenty of people, It's and they're not necessarily, the woman might not be saying, Sven, you're a bad person. I just don't feel the chemistry with you. Mm -hmm. but that's okay. 
I mean, we've all sat across from someone on a date and, you know, they were wonderful and lovely and, and intelligent and witty, but I just didn't feel the chemistry. That's not a slam on that person. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, you know, you put two chemicals together and those two chemicals ignite. You put two other chemicals together and they're, they're just dormant. They don't do a damn thing. And that's mm-hmm. okay. It doesn't mean anything is wrong with boron and iridium. Mm-hmm. It just means they don't fucking whatever together or they do whatever together, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea what boron or uridium is, but (laughs) one of them is in our phones. I think uridium is in our phones. Anyway, point is this, you're going to open up and you're not going to, you're not going to, there are going to people who it just doesn't work for them, but it still requires the opening up. And what's blocking you from opening up is those fears, fears of being seen for who you really are. I have one final question for you, Michael, and it's simply this. If you were to be totally honest, totally honest, what percent do you like you? I would say 50%. Okay. And if there is a distinction for you between like and love, what percent do you love you? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe 30 Do you love you? Let me ask you, do you yeah. love you? I love, do you? I love parts of me, I think, yeah. Okay, then forgive me for asking. Then again, we're back to this question. I guess that wasn't my last question. This will be it. If you're 50% you don't like and some you don't love, what is the unlikable slash unlovable part about you? Yeah, this is what I I have to think about. And what is it? No, what is it? You can't simultaneously tell me I don't love me, but then not tell me what you don't love about yourself or don't like about yourself unless... This notion that I don't love or like myself is an outdated notion that I'm still thinking when I realize, God, I actually do like love myself. So either there is something or there isn't, and you realize, holy shit, mm-hmm. I'm still believing in something that I don't believe in. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm wondering. I mean, I just have a kind of a propensity towards the the derogatory and, and the self. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so your dad, is, your dad is still running your life. Your yeah. dad is still running your life. Yeah. That is your dad's voice. And of course, your mom was complicit in that mm-hmm. at the very least. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you need to be doing is you need to be going in uh, inside and exploring your anger, your disappointment, your sadness, your anger towards dad and also towards mom for not protecting you better, that he was able to allowed to unleash his shit show on your precious little soul at seven and nine years old. And mm-hmm. she let it happen. Mm-hmm. It's both. It's not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, you've been a great guest. I hope you'll um, stick around afterwards for a little bit of overtime. Uh, mm-hmm. We do post the overtime over on YouTube. We don't put it up with the regular podcast on you know most podcast sites, but we do post it up on YouTube because um, I do have one more question to ask you. But Michael, you've been a terrific guest. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, a real fucking pleasure. I'll bet. (laughs) 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 Thanks so much for coming on the show. And to everyone listening out there in listening podcast land, thank you for tuning into the Badass Counseling Show on behalf of Rob the Rocket and Casey in the booth. I am Sven Erlens and have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.